Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll read verses 17 through 24 for our text this evening. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are now in what uh, I suppose may be described as the, the practical section of the book of Ephesians, in that it uh, makes application of... Uh, the doctrine of our salvation in Christ to our lives. Uh, how does being in Christ, you know, that uh, characteristic phrase which describes uh, our status as Christians in union with the Savior, how does being in Christ affect your walk? And uh, our text uses that language of walk to describe our our lives, our lifestyle. Uh, if you're familiar with the language of Scripture, you recognize that's a it's a very common way of depicting the Christian life as a as a progressive movement, uh, a pilgrimage, uh, a way of life that is heavenward, that is Godward, that is according to God's law, according to God's word. We heard from earlier in this chapter that uh, we are to speak the truth. We are to speak the truth in love, verse 15. And uh, that indeed is a big part of uh, living the truth as it is in Jesus. That's the language that we, that we hear in verse 21. The truth as it is in Jesus. And uh, it seems that more and more, in the world in which we live, there is an absence of truth, a, a disregard for the truth, or even a disbelief in such a thing as truth in any kind of uh, absolute and, and ultimate way. And our text actually describes uh, that characteristic of the world that is without the knowledge and understanding and acceptance of the truth. And we know the reason for that. We know the reason for the state of the world. And that is that it is without Christ. It is without God. And uh, without hope in the world. And here the church is to stand out. The, the church is the bright light that shines in this darkness. And that means that every, every member is called by God's grace uh, to show the difference that Christ makes in our lives, in our, in the workplace, and in our interaction with, with our neighbors, or 
our fellow students, in every area of life. We are to walk in a way that is distinctive, that shows our relationship with the Savior. And that's our theme from this passage, that we are to live as those who have learned Christ. And we're going to consider those three points as indicated in your bulletin, beginning with the fact that we are to live in stark contrast to a world without Christ. And this indeed is one of those passages that gives a very, very dark uh, description of human depravity in verses 19 or 17 uh, through 19. It's, it's a passage that is comparable to Romans chapter 1 or, or chapter 3 in its depiction of uh, man in his fallen condition. And it's important to see that indeed this is a description of, of mankind, not not simply some bad apples, not uh, the kinds of people that are housed in our our federal or provincial uh, pr- prisons throughout the land, uh, not devil worshipers, as if it uh, is really descriptive of just a certain class of really wicked people, whereas most people, uh, in general, as the expression goes, well, they're basically good at heart. And nobody's perfect, right? People all make mistakes, but but generally, you know, your neighbors, even as unbelievers, they're they're not such bad people. But when you look at our text, you see that it's describing the Gentiles. It even uses the language, the rest of the Gentiles. You're not to walk, you're not to live like the rest of the nations. The Gentiles, there's a way of basically referring to all the nations of the earth, all the people of the world. Now, in distinction from Jews here, uh, but that's not to suggest that the Jews, by nature, are um, are different, that they, by nature, are um, godly or good. No, the reason why this language is used is uh, to remind these Ephesian Christians of the great difference that the grace of God has brought to their lives. You know, we considered that last... Uh, and a few weeks ago, in connection with chapter 2, where we hear the exhortation, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh. Now, they're still Gentiles in the sense that they're non-Jews. Um, they, they belong to the people of nations. Uh, but they're no longer in the flesh. They no longer live those lives that are characteristic of people that are without God and without hope in the world. But a great difference has taken place in their lives, distinguishing them from their natural condition. And so what our text describes in verse 17 through 19 is what we all are by nature. Like what we read in chapter 2 in the first part. That by nature we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're children of wrath even as, as the others. And so we are to listen even to this dark description in human, of human depravity, and we're to be humbled by it. We're to be humbled in the sense that we say, yes, this is, this is who we are. Left to ourselves, without the saving grace of God, this describes me to a T. But also to hear it with the humility of gratitude in God's grace that has made a difference so that it no longer describes who we are. And that means we ought no longer to live as the Gentiles, as the nations in their sin, apart from Christ. Let's listen to this description given here. Those without Christ are are people whom we might say they do not and they cannot 
think properly. I know that may sound drastic, and I want to be clear that we're not talking about um, matters of intelligence or, or IQ, but we're talking about the way we all, in our fallen nature, suffer from what is called the nuthetic effects of the fall. And it's described in such a way that really does focus upon the way people without Christ think. It describes him as, as those who's, who walk according to the futility of their mind. Futility. What is futility? Well, maybe I can illustrate it this way. Imagine that you're on the job, maybe you're on a construction site, and uh, the boss says to you, young man, I want you to move this pile of sand over on the other side of the house we're building. And here's a wheelbarrow, and here's a pitchfork. Go to work. How well would that work? To shovel sand with a pitchfork? That's a picture of futility. It doesn't work. You can sweat and work all day long. You're not going to make any progress. You're not going to fill even the wheelbarrow with sand with a pitchfork. And so futility really describes wasted, expended effort and energy. And the people of this world expend the energy of their intellect in futility. Their aims, whatever they may be, maybe they have high aspirations. Maybe they want to change society for good. Maybe they want to be a great success in terms of of uh, financial stature or power. Maybe they just want to lead a quiet life. Maybe they just want some peace. Well, as they pursue these things with their own ideas of what's most important and what's most valuable, the Bible judged their way of thinking as futile. Now, for many, that means that they will not reach their dreams. Even the things that they aspire to will not happen. They will not become rich. They will not achieve the kind of peace that they hoped for. They will not be influential. They will not affect any great change. But they might achieve some of those things they aim at. They might, they might reach some of their dreams. They might manage to carve out a little space where they can enjoy their their homes, or their retirement, or their family, or their small pleasures. But the fact is that when they appear before the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to know that all these endeavors of their lives, all that they aimed for without God was futile. It achieved nothing positive. In fact, it will be exposed that their minds in terms of what they valued and what they pursued as of most importance was ruled by futility. Their minds were, their understanding was darkened. That's another expression of our text that describes the way of thinking, the mind of unbelief, darkened. Imagine someone whose eyes function properly or people whose brains are you know, actually functioning well. They're able to reason. They're able to memorize a lot of important information. They're able to engage in all kinds of activities in this life. And yet they've got a pair of glasses on that distorts everything. And that describes in a, with a different image, a different picture, the reality of the mind of man without God. There's a kind of distortion. There's a veil of darkness. 
so that their perspective on everything is actually not clear, not true, not vivid, but they're ruled by a kind of deep prejudice in their thinking. Their minds are darkened because of the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance. Now, again, that sounds insulting, doesn't it? But we're not talking about a lack of information. We're talking about the fact that to those of the world without the knowledge of God, whatever knowledge they may have of true value and significance, and it may be that there are those who have a kind of notional knowledge of matters of faith, but there's a ignorance in them such that that knowledge that they have doesn't really penetrate. It doesn't take hold of them in such a way as to really shape their values and their pursuits. And so they have a notional knowledge of God, a nominal kind of faith that doesn't really affect their lives very deeply at all. And they yet have a deep-rooted opposition to the truth. And our text makes clear that where this is the case, it really is a matter of the heart. That phrase, because of the blindness of their hearts. In other words, it's not a brain defect at all. It's not a matter of IQ or intelligence. It's a matter of the fundamental disposition and value of their their lives in a most central way. See, our problem by nature is a deep prejudice of heart against the truth. Actually, the, the first chapter of Romans in its description of men in his sin, who is confronted with the real revelation of God. It's an inescapable manifestation of God's power and divinity that uh, they see in creation that obligates them to worship God. It obligates them to be thankful. But the verdict of Scripture, as we read it in verse 28, is that they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It's not as if they have no awareness of God. No, they don't like the knowledge of God. They don't like his ways. They don't like his word. They don't like his claim upon their lives. And that's what alienates people from God. Now, I use the word they don't like. You know, the catechism uses a stronger word. It says, by nature, we are inclined to hate God and our neighbor. And that's true. But maybe the word dislike communicate something important because often this hatred, it doesn't appear in a kind of passionate way. Oh, I hate God. I hate the Bible. I hate his word. No, it can sound very sophisticated and very, very intelligent sounding. Very polite, in fact, and civilized by people who consider themselves to be uh, reasonable thinkers who follow science and not superstition. But it's a dislike that goes so deep that it will resist the force of truth unless and until God miraculously changes their hearts, does a fundamental spiritual change, makes them alive, to use, again, the language of chapter 2. You know, when you consider this, these verses, you know, it's, it's quite, it's quite uh, obvious in a, in a way, if you think about it, that it's really not possible to take the Bible seriously and have a neutral position towards it, right? For people that don't believe the gospel, who do not receive the, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the one way of salvation, if they read verses like this, 
and they understand what it actually says, that this is God's description of who they are, and how their minds are darkened, and they're ignorant, and they're pursuing futility. It's like there's only two reasonable responses, and one is that they would be very, very deeply offended, and be very angry, and feel deeply insulted by what the Bible says about them. Or they should be humbled by it, because it's true. But the idea of having a neutral attitude towards the Bible, oh yeah, the Bible's a good book. There's a lot of valuable things in there. and We can learn a lot from it. It doesn't really make sense in view of the Bible's own verdict upon human uh, pride and ability. This passage goes on to describe how this blindness leads to a kind of callousness, a kind of ungodliness there in verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Again, Romans 1 describes this kind of uh, degression. In verse 21, it, it uh describes those who, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, right? That same idea. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And then it says, Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Again, verse uh, 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Now that's a description of judgment. People give themselves over to a rejection of God. They give themselves over as it's described in Ephesians. And God in His judgment says, okay, that's what you want. That's the way you want to live. And He judges them by giving up them up to their passions. It's really a dreadful description of God judging sin with sin. Not by making people sin, but by re withholding restraints, the kinds of restraints that they hate and reject. And this is on display in our world. In fact, it's a wonder that uh, our world remains as civilized as it, as it does. And that might even lead us to think, well, this sounds like an exaggeration here. I've got neighbors that they don't seem to give themselves up to all manner of uncleanness with greediness. So it seems to be describing like the extreme, the, the radical end of a rebellion against God and not really accurate to most people. Well, we acknowledge that, that, that there is restraint even upon people's desires. But we can be sure that that restraint is not the love of God. It's not the fear of God. It's a knowledge of Christ. In a way, it's, it's the result of competing and conflicting desires within them. They want to give themselves up to sin, but they don't want to ruin their health. They don't want to go to jail. They want to keep somewhat of a reputation. And so they live lives of small pleasures and they try to find happiness in their materialistic pursuits without God, without concern for His glory. And so when it comes down to it, yes, there is a difference. But it's not a difference of the heart or of the mind. Just a difference in the way this natural depravity comes to expression. And people remain alienated from the life of God. And you see, brothers and sisters, what, what, what Paul is saying here is that such people, they don't know God. They're blinded by their sin and ignorance. But that's not true of you. No longer. 
You're not alienated from God. You know God. You know the truth as it is in Jesus. And so, of course, we must show that. We must no longer live like others. But we are to live in harmony with what we know. We are to live in harmony with our knowledge of Christ. I mentioned this morning that we should be filled with a kind of horror at sin, the kind of sin that sometimes is overtly displayed in our world and celebrated as something good. And this is one of those passages where, indeed, Paul's aim is to paint the world in its true colors and to to get such a reaction of repulsion. Now, we might meet, read this description of, of people who give themselves over to all kinds of uncleanness with with greediness, who are past feeling. And we we may say to ourselves, I could never live like that. I could never live like that. And that can be very good, that response, right? It really depends on why. It's possible that such a response could be one of pride and one of superiority. Oh, I'm so far above that kind of behavior. It's beneath my dignity. I could never do those kinds of things. It's as if I'm naturally superior to that way of thinking and that way of living. Well, indeed, that would be a matter of pride and, and really kind of ignorance of ourselves. We can look at the most depraved life and, and rather say, but for the grace of God, there go I. I have the seeds of the most horrible sins in my own fallen nature. But if we could say, I could never live like that because I know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know the Savior. And he has changed me. And I'm repulsed at that. I'm repulsed at who I am by nature. And I could never go back to that way of living. You know, there are some converts who can hardly even bear to look at a picture of themselves in their rebellious years. And they look at their demeanor and they look at their, their facial expressions, perhaps, or the way they dress or what they're doing. And their stomach turns over that picture. That's the old me. It's painful even to remember that kind of life that I lived. In a way, that's the kind of thinking that the Apostle Paul here is appealing to. Because knowing Christ must make a difference. But you have not so learned Christ, he says, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. The language here is, it's, uh, it's significant, isn't it? He says, you have not so learned Christ. No, he doesn't say, you have not so learned about Christ. Right? There's a, there's a distinction. Now again, that does not, of course, dismiss the importance of learning the facts about who Jesus Christ is and what, what he has done and what he continues to do in our lives. Of course, that's, that's essential to the true knowledge of the Savior. But to learn Christ involves more. It involves knowing him as the living Savior with whom we have a relationship, as one in whom we trust, one upon whom we call upon, one whom we want to obey. Knowing Christ means knowing and experiencing that by the grace of God, we do believe with the heart and love the Savior. Some of you might recognize that language. It's actually lifted from the Canons of Dort, third and fourth chapter as it describes the effects of regeneration. You know, regeneration, the new birth, such a mysterious work of God. 
impossible to describe fully, impossible often to identify even when it took place in our lives. What is the point in which our heart was made a heart of flesh, perhaps in our infancy, perhaps in our early years? There's a great variety of experience. And however however remarkable or drastic one's conversion might be, does that mean that they can pinpoint the moment, the time in which God performed this miracle of grace? No, but it's known by its effects. It's known by a genuine trust in the Savior and a love for Him. That's what it means to learn Christ in a way that involves a relationship of faith and trust with Him. And that means that the teaching about Christ has become effective to actually convert. It can't leave people unchanged, still living like the world. Because they've been called by the Savior, right? I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. I am known by my own, Jesus says. And they hear my voice. They follow me. There's a relationship with the shepherd described there. And that's the kind of effect that... uh Paul is talking about here a knowledge of Christ that creates a conviction and purpose to apply that knowledge to life in terms of what I do, what I don't do, behaviors that I put on and those that I, that I put off. Now, this doesn't remove the struggle with remaining sin. It doesn't make sanctification effortless or easy or sudden. But when we are in our right mind, a Christian mind, we think, I must live in harmony with what I know. How could I do otherwise? I'd be a phony if I didn't pursue that. And I must do it out of a relationship with my God and Savior. It's not a matter of keeping up appearances. It's not a matter of meeting the expectation of others. It's not a matter of being driven by fear or by pressure. It's a matter of knowing Christ. And that makes the difference. Live in stark contrast to the world that is without Christ. Live in harmony with your knowledge of Christ. Live in the grace of your radical renewal in Christ. See, knowing Christ includes knowing that we are joined to him Now, again, there are varying degrees of theological precision in our understanding or expression of what it means to be united to Christ. But every Christian is joined to the Lord Jesus in a vital way, like vines that draw their life and sap from the branch to which they're connected. By nature, we're all in Adam, right? In Adam, all die. By virtue of our relationship with this representative of the human race, we share in his guilt, we share in his corruption, and share in his condemnation. And that's what defines our natural self. That's what defines the old man. That's the language used here. But we are recreated in Christ Jesus, right? That's the language of chapter 2 again. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He died for us to create in himself one new man 
chapter 4, or cha chapter 2, verse 15. One new man, again, in the connection there, that, that is descriptive of, of the new creation of God. It's not simply individualistic. There is a people that are now in Christ and united together in their relationship to the Savior. And when sinners trust in Christ, their ties to the old man are broken in the sense that they're put off. And in union with Christ, we, we put on the new man. Think of Romans chapter 13, the exhortation to the saints there to no longer follow the ways of their former former life, which described in that context in terms of of, uh, of revelry and, and drunkenness. Let us walk, walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Those are characteristics of the old man. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Put on Christ. Draw from His fullness. Live in this union with the Savior by faith in Him. See, that means a, a great reversal from, from corruption to sanctification, from, from deceitful desires of the flesh and of the mind to a deep renewal of mind. You hear that in our, in our text there in verse uh, 23 where it says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It doesn't just say be renewed in mind as if it's a matter of accumulating more information. Well, it involves that, but it's a matter of being renewed in the, the fundamental disposition and direction of our ways of thinking so that more and more our, our tendencies are not to mind the things of the flesh, but the things of the Spirit. Now, that's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about this change, right? It's not simply a natural cause and effect of study. It's not by our own efforts that we can accomplish these things. But it's by faith in God's provision. It's by confidence in the sufficiency of Christ to carry on this renewing work in us by His grace. And again, we see, don't we, that it's really the knowledge of Christ that is it is the heart of the issue, the knowledge of this Savior. Why do people depart from the faith? Why do some of our children and young people who showed such promise come to a point where they really reject the things they've been taught? Maybe through the influence of higher education, maybe through a group of friends, maybe through experiences in the world. Sometimes you hear testimonies of people that have left the faith. It's described as if it involved a kind of enlightenment. Yes, I was raised under a very strict religion. Do's and don'ts. Do's and don'ts. You gotta follow the rules. But I came to realize that that was just suppressing my own ability to think for myself. And it was stifling my freedom. And it was keeping me in a condition of bigotry and narrow-mindedness, and ignorance. But I've discovered that there are all different religions in this world, and all different kinds of people, good and bad. And I've come to see that, yeah, I was, I was brainwashed, I was conditioned to think a certain way, but now I'm free from all that. Freedom. 
Freedom of thought. Freedom to live as I choose. Sounds so liberating. Is that really enlightenment? Is that really what happened? Not according to God's word. According to God's word, it's clear that now they're just actually living out that natural condition of a feudal mind, of ignorance, and blindness of heart. Now it's clear that whatever information they might have known about who Jesus is, they never knew the Savior. They never knew him as one in whom they put their trust in, one in whom they whom they loved. If our gospel is hidden, Paul said, is is hidden to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. But the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've come to know him, come to trust in him, and we will look nowhere else for enlightenment, nowhere else for true life and true peace, nowhere else for truth, truth that is certain and sure and saving. It's in that knowledge that the world judges as foolishness, but it's the knowledge that gives eternal life through the Savior. Amen.